there it is, that never gets old. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's special lecture before the White House, New York City's Capital Legacy, presented by Thomas, Dr. Thomas Falserski. As a reminder, the views of the speakers are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York or its sponsors Tavern Museum. Dr. Thomas Falserski is an Associate Professor of History at Eastern Connecticut State University. A scholar of early American history, he holds a Bachelor's of Arts from Cornell University, a Master of Arts from the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and a PhD in history from Cornell University. His research interests include US presidents and first ladies and American political history. Dr. Balserski was featured on C-SPAN series, Lectures in History, for his work on antebellum political culture. His book, Bosom Friends, the Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King explores the personal and political relationship of those two 19th century Democrats. His new project explores the history of the Democratic Party, America's oldest partisan institution. His presentation tonight stems from new research into the history of New York City that will appear in the White House History Quarterly in spring 2023. I'm now going to turn it over to Dr. Balserski. Well, thank you very much, Mary, for that kind introduction. And good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in tonight from across the country and the continent, it seems. I'm so pleased to have you all here. I look forward to engaging with you later over the Q&A. It's a real treat for me to share with you all my research into this often overlooked period of American history when New York City was the capital between the years 1785 and 1790. I say that these years are overlooked not so much by historians who have written extensively on the subject, but more particularly by New Yorkers themselves. Of course, Francis Tavern Museum, as well as the New York Historical Society, the New York Public Library, and the City Museum of New York have done wonders to preserve this rich legacy yet their efforts can only go so far. So as you will see in tonight's presentation, and I don't think I'm giving anything away here, very little survives in the way of physical structures associated with 18th century New York City, which has made the task of recreating the city's streetscapes, both a true pleasure and a research challenge. Based on research at historical societies and libraries, and on my own travels around Manhattan, I've come to see the period when New York was the capital as absolutely critical for the city and the nation. So with that, let's dive in into this history of this crucial period in American history, starting with perhaps the most important event to take place during these years, the inauguration of George Washington as the first president of the United States. On April 30th, 1789, George Washington was inaugurated as the first president. On the streets below, crowds gathered to witness Washington, his hand placed on a Bible, be sworn in from a balcony at Federal Hall in New York City. After taking the oath of office, Washington supposedly added the words, so help me God and kiss the holy book. Following the ceremony, Washington delivered an inaugural address to the members of Congress inside Federal Hall, then attended services at nearby St. Paul's Chapel. That evening, fireworks illuminated the sky. The future of New York City and the nation had never looked brighter. It had been a long road getting to this point. Between 1775 and 1785, first the Continental Congress and then the Confederation Congress had met temporarily in seven different cities, namely Philadelphia, Baltimore, Lancaster, York, Princeton, Annapolis, and Trenton. Adding to its difficulties, Congress was sharply divided over the permanent home of the capital, split between those who wanted a central inland location and those who favored an established eastern seaboard city. Moreover, the nation had undergone what some historians have termed a second American revolution, namely the Constitutional Convention of 1787 in Philadelphia. When New York City became the capital in 1785, it had done so as part of a loose assembly of 13 states 
under the Articles of Confederation government. Each state could send as many delegates to the Confederation Congress as it wished, but each state only received one vote. The Articles of Confederation neither provided for a president or a Supreme Court, though the Confederation Congress chose one of its own members to provide over the body while in session. Founded as a wartime government to replace the Continental Congress, the Articles of Confederation quickly revealed its limitations. It had no power to tax, and all its legislation had to be unanimously agreed upon. It also lacked the ability to enforce the laws, leaving that task instead to the individual states. In 1786, delegates gathered at Annapolis to address the issue of the impost or tariff to raise revenue for the government, but failing to reach a quorum, they quickly adjourned, agreeing to meet next spring in Philadelphia. George Washington, who had long been a proponent of a stronger national government, agreed to attend the second meeting which became known in, in time as the Constitutional Convention. At the, at, at the as the convention ironed out the three branches of government, which is justly famous for legislative, executive, and judicial, that, would, that formed the basis of our government today, it was also naturally expected that George Washington, who presided over that convention, would serve as the first president of this new government. Thus, Washington's inauguration on April 30th, 1789, marked the culmination of years of work to provide for a stronger national government. Perhaps fittingly, Washington took the oath of office in New York, a city that had been an unattainable target for, the, for nearly the entirety of the War of Independence. Finally, then, it seemed Washington had arrived in New York for good. New York City had been the scene of Washington's earliest nearly fatal defeat at the hands of the British Army. He had been ordered to defend the city by Congress in 1776, but the geography of the city made it nearly an impossible task. The Battle of Brooklyn in late August 1776 witnessed the Continental Army retreat in a near route to Manhattan. From there, Washington again withdrew in October after a series of battles on the island, ceding New York to British occupation and not stepping foot in Manhattan again for seven long years. Eventually, Washington and the Continental Army would engage in what's been called a war of posts up and down the Hudson River, trying to keep control of that valley and thus keeping together the continental United States. But the recapture of New York, its reoccupation by the Continental Army never disappeared as a primary objective of Washington's and the war. During the war, New York was devastated, therefore, by seven years of British occupation, including two great fires that had burned extensive swaths of the city in first in September 1776 and again in August 1778. The city's fortunes began to improve following the British evacuation on November 25th, 1783, a date that is celebrated for decades, that was celebrated for decades by the city's residents as Evacuation Day and it's pictured in this stylized portrait from more than a century later. By 1790, the city, as somewhat depicted here, was already featuring a diverse population that had grown to 40,000, of which 2,500 were enslaved African-Americans. Washington's initial order to protect New York City had been issued by Congress which was still safely ensconced in Philadelphia at that point. As the war went on, however, Congress was forced to evacuate Philadelphia for Baltimore, Lancaster, and York, Pennsylvania, before returning there in 1778. Yet Philadelphia was not always a friendly environment for the Confederation Congress. And in June 1783, threats of physical violence against Congress led them to adjourn to Nassau Hall in Princeton, New Jersey, on the, on the campus of the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University. But the cramped quarters of a college dormitory were hardly suitable for the assembly. However, they soon decamped to more spacious quarters in Annapolis, Maryland. When Congress reconvened in September 1784, it did so in Trenton, New Jersey at the French Arms Tavern depicted here in this, por this portrait uh, from the 20th century, then the largest building in the city. Here is where Chancellor Robert Livingston and the New York State Legislature saw their chance to woo Congress to New York City. 
they beseeched the beleaguered body to select New York as, as its next meeting place. Abandoning a plan to create two capitals, Congress voted unanimously on December 23rd, 1784, to relocate permanently to the city of New York. So at the outset, we can see that New York City desperately wanted to attract the seat of government. The city's leaders felt that Congress would bring an influx of economic and political activity and thus revitalize the city. Given the relative small size of the Confederation government, all operations could be contained within existing buildings. Accordingly, the city council offered the Confederation Congress meeting space in City Hall, as well as additional rooms at the tavern kept by Samuel Francis at Broad and Pearl Streets, Francis Tavern. So yes, indeed, official meetings of the new government took place right here in Francis Tavern. Once in New York, the outgoing Confederation Congress set about passing important legislation, including perhaps most importantly, the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which provided for the organization of the Ohio Territory and notably excluded slavery from it. Congress also continued debating the relative merits of various sites for the permanent capital. In Philadelphia, in the Constitutional Convention of 1787, failed to resolve this question and, and eventually voted to keep, quote, the present seat of Congress, meaning New York. In September 1788, the Confederation Congress similarly voted to leave the seat of government in New York for the meeting of it, the new Congress to be assembled under the Constitution set and scheduled for March 4th, 1789. And in this map, you get a sense of really just how contained uh, the island of Manhattan was in terms of its development at this point. New Yorkers eagerly prepared to celebrate the changeover to the new government. At midnight on March 3rd, 13 cannons were fired from Fort George in salute of the 13 states, leaving the old Confederation. The next day, flags were flown and church bells rang but only 11 cannons fired in honor of those states that had already ratified the Constitution. North Carolina would not ratify the document until November, and Rhode Island held out until May 1790s, which meant there were only 11 states at the first meeting. New York embraced its place as the capital of this new government, quite seamlessly, in fact. On September 17, 1788, the Common Council of New York City resolved to give over City Hall for the exclusive use of the new government. And remember, it had already given over at City Hall in part though for the Confederation Congress. Now it gave up the entire building. Recognizing however that City Hall could use an upgrade, the council commissioned someone whose name you may already know, Peter Charles L'Enfant, the same L'Enfant who would later design, uh, provide a design for Washington DC to redesign this building first constructed in 1700 into an edifice worthy of a seat of Republican government. Work began on October 6th and continued through April 8th of the next year, 1790. L'Enfant transformed the old Queen Anne facade by applying a neoclassical facelift repeat, replete with an open balcony topped by a bald eagle, which you can see right in the central uh, front face of the building. The impressive result left one congressman wondering if the building was a trap to catch the Southern men into staying permanently in New York as opposed to a more central location. But many questions remained about the future of the federal government. Most critically, when would George Washington, the newly elected president and father of his country, arrive to take up his new post? And perhaps equally as important, where would he live? And I have an arrow here pointing to the location I'm about to describe. When Congress reconvened in New York City, its members were expected to lodge in private residences or boarding houses at their own expense. As a notable exception to this rule, however, the Confederation Congress provided furnished quarters for its own president at the expense of the government. Since January 1787, the office had been filled by Cyrus Griffin of Virginia, who following in his predecessor's footsteps, lived in a large three-story home at number three Cherry Street, located about six tenths a mile from Federal Hall at St. George's Square, later Franklin Square. Again, you can see it uh, where the arrow meets on the map. The house was situated on land once owned by Robert Benson, who had previously operated a brewery on the site. In 1770, Benson's widow, Catherine Van Borsum, 
and her son, Robert Benson, sold the plot to merchant Walter Franklin, who, by the way, died in 1780 for a sum of, of 2,000 pounds. Franklin, though, immediately built a Georgian-style structure on the site with a front face of about 50 feet. In 1780, Franklin's widow, Maria Bound Franklin, remarried Samuel Osgood, a commissioner of the treasury, whom Washington later appointed postmaster general. Accordingly, the home has variously been called the Walter Franklin House and the Samuel Osgood House. And here we see it, uh, a later watercolor portrait of it that gives you a sense of the original structure's size and scale, even though the buildings uh, adjacent to it and the roof line would have changed by that point. Nonetheless, George Washington was unclear just where he would live as late as March, 1789. Turning down an offer from New York Governor George Clinton, Washington wrote James Madison on March 30th that he would, quote, make it a point to take hired lodgings or rooms in a tavern until some house could be provided. Perhaps he was thinking of Franz's tavern. Ultimately, he concluded, quote, it is my wish and intention to conform to the public desire and expectation with respect to the style proper for the chief magistrate to live in. Fortunately for Washington, Congress had turned its attention to the matter. On April 5th, 15th, 1789, a joint committee of Congress formed to plan the upcoming inauguration also determined to renew the lease on the house at number three Cherry Street for use by the new president. The committee resolved that Mr. Osgood, the proprietor of the house lately occupied by the president of Congress, be requested to put the same house and furniture thereof in proper condition for the residents and use of the president of the United States. The Franklin House, which had been described by the French minister, the Comte de Moustier, as a humble dwelling, was leased for 845 pounds a year with another 8,000 pounds expended to upgrade the home. Coincidentally, Washington's next door neighbor at number five Cherry Street would be John Hancock, himself a former presiding officer of the Confederation Congress. Congressional absenteeism had been the culprit in the delay to secure residence for the incoming president. On March 4th, 1789, the day appointed by the Confederation Congress for the start of this new government, only eight senators and 13 representatives from the 11 ratifying states were present. A quorum finally emerged in the House on April 1st, and five days later, the Senate achieved numbers sufficient to count the electoral votes cast for president. The next morning, Charles Thompson, the Secretary of Congress, set out for Mount Vernon to inform Washington of his selection as president, which he did on the morning of April 14th. Washington immediately prepared to leave for New York City, but short of funds, he borrowed some 625 pounds from his neighbor, Richard Conway, to pay his travel expenses. All along the route, people came out to witness Washington pass. Stops included Alexandria, Baltimore, Wilmington, Philadelphia, Trenton, Princeton, Brunswick, Woodbridge, Bridgetown, and Elizabethtown, New Jersey, on April 23rd, where a 47-foot ceremonial barge had been constructed for the occasion, rowed by 13 masters of vessels, one for each state, so they hoped, dressed in white uniforms and black caps. The barge was festooned with an awning and red curtains. Six other barges carrying congressional delegates and other dignitaries comprised the presidential flotilla. The flotilla departed Elizabethtown, New Jersey to the salute of artillery. It went up Newark Bay, up the mouth of what is today the Kilvan Cull, past Bedloe's Island, today's Liberty Island where the Statue of, of Liberty stands, and arrived at Murray's Wharf on the island of Manhattan at three o'clock. There, Washington was greeted by a committee composed of Governor George Clinton, Mayor James Duane, and officers of the city's governing corporation. 
an elaborate parade of military officers, troops, elected officials, clergy, and citizens accompanied the president approximately one mile from the battery to number three, Cherry Street. The meeting of Washington and Clinton was especially significant as they had been opposed to one another not even a year before over the ratification of the new constitution. Washington, who was a strong federalist, never directly confronted Clinton, the leading anti-federalist of New York State, about his stance. But the sight of the two men together, walking and marching together through the Capitol, must have offered a powerful symbol of this new government. Washington, who had traveled to New York without his wife, Marcia, at least, uh, Martha, at least initially, immediately played host upon arrival at the Franklin House, serving wine and punch to visitors. He continued to receive visitors over the next five days prior to his inauguration. However, the new presidential mansion had already received a great deal of scrutiny from New York society. Sarah Osgood Robinson, a niece of Maria Osgood, who again was the wife of Samuel Osgood, wrote to her friend Kitty Wister describing the house. This is her quote. Uncle Walter's house on Cherry Street was taken for him, Washington, and every room furnished in the most elegant manner. Aunt Osgood and Lady Catherine Dewar had the whole management of it. I went the morning before the general's arrival to look at it. The best of furniture in every room and the greatest quantity of plate and china I ever saw. The whole of the first and second stories is papered and the floor is covered with the richest kind of turkey and Wilton carpets. There is scarcely anything talked about now but General Washington and the palace. Not content with the furnishings at the Franklin House, however, Washington expended some 400 pounds for glass and queensware and purchased bedstands, chairs, dining tea, breakfast and card tables, knife boxes, washstands, and clothes press. The efforts paid off, for upon her subsequent arrival, Martha Washington found the house, quote, handsomely furnished, all new for the general. The palace was occupied by members of the Washington family and an array of household staff. Two Custis grandchildren, Eleanor Nellie Park and George Washington Wash Park lived there. So too did Tobias Lear, Washington's personal secretary who supervised four additional secretaries, among them Washington's nephew, Robert Lewis and Thomas Nelson, as well as political aide, Colonel David Humphreys. Samuel Francis oversaw the staff of white servants in his capacity as steward of the household. And they included a coachman, porter, cook, valet de chambre, maids, footmen, and laundresses. The Washington household also included seven enslaved African-Americans from Mount Vernon. This included William Billy Lee, Washington's longtime valet and body servant, Christopher Shields, Lee's nephew, and a later a body servant, Austin and Giles, both footmen, Paris, a stable hand, Molly, nursemaid to the Washington grandchildren, and Oni Judge, who later became famous for escaping from the president. Thus, the staff of 26 outnumbered the four family members in residence at the Franklin House. It would be a pattern that carried over to future executive residences. Even prior to settling his household, Washington participated in the first inaugural ball called a public ball and entertainment. The event had been pushed back by a week to allow for the arrival of Martha Washington. When it, but when it became known that she would be delayed longer than expected, the event went forward on May 7th. With nearly 300 people attending, all eyes were on the president who danced two cotillions and a minuet. A week later, the French minister de Mustier hosted a ball of his own. After Martha Washington arrived in the Capitol, she arranged a schedule of social events, most notably levees, dinners, and drawing rooms, held each Friday from seven until nine o'clock in the evening. 
at the Franklin House. George Washington attended the functions without sword or hat as he was in his capacity as the husband of the hostess and not as president of the United States. For its part, Congress voted after prolonged debate that Washington be addressed simply as the president of the United States or Mr. President without additional title. President Washington also instituted the custom of holding state dinners each Thursday afternoon at four o'clock. The gathering included from 10 to 22 guests, in addition to the president's official family, which besides those relatives I mentioned included his secretary, secretarial staff. The meal tended toward roast beef, veal, lamb, turkey, duck, and varieties of game, food not all that different from today's Francis Tavern's menu, with silver framed table ornaments adorned by chase mythological statutes. Beyond these formal social events, Washington also opened the house to the public twice per week on Tuesdays and Fridays between two and three o'clock in the afternoon. Congress concluded its first session on September 29, 1789, with a strong record of legislative accomplishments, among them the introduction of amendments of the Constitution, what we call still today the Bill of Rights, and the passage of the Judiciary Act of 1789, establishing the Supreme Court of the United States. Hoping to strengthen the bonds of union, Washington toured the New England states from October 15th to November 13th, thus establishing a re regular travel as another function of the presidency. Washington's first year at the Franklin House had proven a success with the start of the new congressional session scheduled for January 1790. However, he determined to seize the first opportunity to upgrade the palace. And here again, the map shows the arrow of the second building I'm about to discuss. Washington's chance came when the French minister de Monastir returned home, vacating his fine and commodious mansion at number 39 Broadway. And now we will look at it. Built in 1786 to 1787, it was owned by the merchant Alexander McComb, who gladly offered it to Washington at an annual rent of 2,500 pounds. While more expensive than the Franklin House, it was a story higher and featured a garden extending to the banks of the Hudson River. All in all, the McComb House or the Mansion House, as the building later became known, was considered the finest private dwelling in the city and conveniently was located four blocks from Federal Hall. On February 23rd, 1790, Washington and his family relocated to the McComb House. Upon agreeing to rent the house, Washington had surveyed the existing furniture and purchased several pieces left behind by the French minister, including a writing desk and a chair. From there, he arranged for the construction of a 12-stall stable to accommodate his team of horses. In this way, Washington established another precedent, that of expanding the presidential residence to suit the occupant's needs. And here we turn to an image that uh, I provided to help promote the event and that was on the Francis Tavern website, an image that I found startling uh, and very interesting in the archives of the New York Historical Society. So let me describe it. Hopeful about its possible future as the nation's capital, New York City prepared to construct a permanent residence for the president. On March 16, 1790, the state legislature established a building commission and subsequently provided funding for 8,000 pounds to build a grand house on the site of Fort George at the base of Broadway. One of the architects consulted for the job appears to have been the 27-year-old James McComb, whose sketches attributed to, the, to the, the building later known as Government House survive at the New York Historical Society. It's what you're looking at. McComb's design features a giant four-column portico, but in other respects is quite different 
from the executed building known as Government House. And you can see in some of its features, just the ornate neoclassical nature, including the, the niches up and down the front face for busts to be included of statues, as well as this dramatic saucer dome crowning a low cupola ringed with windows and balustrades on the roof of the mansion. Now, what I'm showing here on the screen is not the government house, no. What I'm showing you on the screen next is James Hoban, the architect of the initial White House in what would become the District of Columbia. And I hope you begin to see that James McComb's early sketch for the presidential residence has much in common with James Hoban's eventual sketch for what became the White House. And here too, I wanna to provide some side-by-side -side comparisons of Macomb's government house and a sketch made by a later architect of the White House, Benjamin Henry Latrobe. You see on the left sketch of government house as, as imagined by Macomb, a grand dining room across the back with a large semi-octagonal bay projecting into the garden and we also see a number of rooms off these, this main room, including a withdrawing room. And from its central domed space, this version that Macomb came up with uses a circular room with corner niches and a balcony, as well as a piazza or balcony on the garden front space. As compared to the design that Benjamin Henry Latrobe came up with, we see in common some elements, a rectangular structure, an oval room that would ultimately become part of the library for the president, as well as adjoining rooms, the state rooms. And this is in today the, the historic part of the White House that now I'm happy to say has just reopened for tours. But the actual government house, the building that was built uh, and later would be torn down, as we shall see, was most likely not Macomb's design, but instead a more utilitarian building. This red brick colonnaded two-story structure was probably instead designed by a different architect, not Macomb. Um, and in doing some of the research for this, it is still debated just who designed it. It's instead attributed to an architect named or builder named Robinson. Um, and if you notice here, the, the, the pediments uh, featuring those statues are gone, but what does survive and what may then therefore have been an influence from Macomb is that four columned front facing portico and pediment at the top, as well as that balustrade and approach with an iron railing. So this is what gets built. It's called Government House. And as I said, Government House was initially designed to be the residence for George Washington president. Unfortunately, perhaps, Government House never fulfilled its original purpose as the president's home, though it did serve as an executive residence of a kind for a time. The governors of New York State used the house as their residence until the state capital relocated from New York to Albany in 1797. It was then used as a custom house and a gallery for the American Academy of Fine Arts. The New York Historical Society also met there as its second meeting place between 1809 and 1815 when it was torn down. But back to the mansion house. From the Macomb house, Washington settled into the duties of the presidency. He began to call upon individual officers of the cabinet for advice including Thomas Jefferson, who had recently returned from France to take up his duties as the first Secretary of State. Washington also paid special attention to the military and diplomatic duties of the position, monitoring the Army's efforts in the Ohio country and signing the nation's first treaty with representatives from the Creek Nation. Washington was thus learning the extent of his executive powers from his new home but it wasn't to last. Meanwhile, Congress over at Federal Hall 
continued to debate the future location of the capital. The political currents were running strongly against New York by this point, with many favoring a return to Philadelphia. Dr. Benjamin Rush echoed the sentiments of others when he declared, I rejoice in the prospect of Congress leaving New York. It is a sink of political vice. William McClay, another Pennsylvanian, similarly decried the pompous people of New York. In addition, numerous smaller cities around the nation clamored to become the capital, most notably Philadelphia. At the same time, Congress had reached an impasse over the issue of assuming the state's Revolutionary War debts and thus establishing financial solvency for the new government. But on or about June 20th, Thomas Jefferson arranged for a dinner between James Madison and Alexander Hamilton at his rented house at 57 Maiden Lane. There, Madison and Hamilton ironed out what has been dubbed the, tinner, the dinner table bargain, or more recently from the musical Hamilton, the room where it happened. In exchange for assuming federal debts, the capital would be permanently located along the Potomac River with the temporary capital relocated to Philadelphia. And this cartoon, if you now see, is actually showing the ship of state, the metaphorical ship of state on a path that the artist depicts would have it crash on the falls if it went to Philadelphia, but instead shows a, a tributary path to, uh, in the sort of upper left corner, you can make out the Potomac. And this is by way of the Conicachig, which is a creek further west in the state of Pennsylvania and is itself a tributary of the Potomac. So there was this idea that a temporary capital, potentially not a Philadelphia, but elsewhere would be a better route and a safer one for the nation. That didn't stop New Yorkers from expressing their outrage. The people were, quote, disappointed and vexed at the result. A political cartoon blasted the Pennsylvania delegate Robert Morris for his role in crafting legislation, notably featuring him carrying off the physical Capitol building, Federal Hall, with the help of the devil. Perhaps not coincidentally, Washington occupied Morris's Philadelphia mansion upon his arrival in the city. But the Capitol would not remain in Philadelphia for long, destined as it was for a new federal district created on the banks of the Potomac River near Georgetown and Alexandria. That is, of course, the District of Columbia, what we call today Washington, D.C. On Saturday, November 1st, 1800, President John Adams moved into the still in unfinished White House. And two weeks later, Congress met in Washington City for the first time on November 17th. The nation had entered a new chapter. What happened to the various buildings associated with President Washington's time in the nation's first capital? The Franklin House transformed from a residence to a commercial property, remaining in family hands until 1856, when it was demolished and replaced by stores. And you may remember earlier a picture of a chair that was, that was known as the Washington's chair. That was actually a relic created from the timbers that were, were salvaged from the, the demolition of the Franklin House by Benjamin Winthrop, who dedicated it and donated it to the New York Historical Society, where you can see it on view uh, on the top floor of, it, of the museum. The subsequent building, though, the one that replaced the first Franklin House, was demolished itself in the 1880s to make way for the stone arches of the Brooklyn Bridge. A commemorative plaque provided by the Mary Washington Colonial Chapters of the Daughters of the American Revolution was installed on April 30th, 1899, uh, 110 years to the day of Washington's inauguration. The plaque, which I was able to get with the power of my new iPhone's Zoom, um, has otherwise become inaccessible and I think quite neglected, as you can see in the, the picture on the right showing the scaffolding and the permanent barrier there. It reads, however, as I was able to make out, the first presidential mansion, number one Cherry Street, occupied by George Washington 
from April 23rd, 1789 to February 23rd, 1790. The Macomb House has been similarly lost to time. The building was transformed into a hotel called Bunker's Mansion House, named after its uh, proprietor, or Bunker's Hotel in 1821, which operated as a hotel for nearly three decades. The old house was apparently demolished to make way for freestanding brownstone homes, however, in the 1850s. These brownstones were subsequently demolished in the early 1900s to make way for a neoclassical commercial building, which was itself torn down to erect the present 38-story Harriman building on the site in 1926 at number 39 Broadway. In 1939, the Daughters of the American Revolution placed a plaque at the building's base reading, site of second presidential mansion occupied by George Washington, February 23rd to August 30th, 1790. The old federal hall, the one supposedly carried off down the river where Congress met returned to city usage in 17, after 1790. But the building itself was torn down to make way for a new customs house that opened in 1842. In 1862, this customs house, the custom house relocated to 55 Wall Street and the building became part of the sub-treasury system where in its basement, gold and silver were stored. Plans to tear down this second federal hall were prevented by a group of concerned citizens in 1939 under the banner of the Federal Hall Memorial Association or Associates. The National Park Service began operating on the site in 1955. On September 6, 2002, in the wake of the September 11 attacks, approximately 300 members of the United States Congress traveled from Washington, DC to New York City, where they convened inside Federal Hall as a symbolic show of support for the city, which was still recovering. The meeting was the first by Congress in New York since 1790. Jefferson's residence at 57 Maiden Lane has sadly met the fate of nearly every building associated with New York's time as the capital. The house containing the room where it happened was torn down to make way for office buildings, eventually after another teardown, becoming home becoming the site of the Home Insurance Company of New York. This latest 45-story building located at 59 Maiden Lane was constructed in 1966. A plaque erected by the Home Insurance Company of New York marks the spot today, though it is hidden and inaccessible by, you guessed it, scaffolding. A fire claimed the government house in 1814 and it was demolished the next year to make way for private houses, which were known as Macomb's Row after that architect, James Macomb. After the Civil War, when the area became commercial, it was called Steamship Row. These structures were demolished in 1906 to make way for what was initially called the Cass Gilbert Custom House after the architect and later rededicated as the Alexander Hamilton U.S. Customs House by President George H.W. Bush in 1991. The Customs House ceased to operate from the site, however, in 1973, and the building was sitting vacant for a number of years before undergoing extensive renovations in the 1980s. Since 1994, the building has been home to the George Gustav Hay Center of the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian, and most recently has become home to a branch of the National Archives and Records Administration. A bronze plaque inside the building commemorates the structure that once stood on the site. You can see the transcription here mentioning Government House, George Washington, and its later history. So I wanna conclude here with an image of a later New York which I want you to take in and see from that earlier map just how big it had gotten. 
The history of New York City's time as the first seat of government is nearly all but forgotten, yet its capital legacy persists. Congress began to realize the full powers available to the new body in New York. Through the passage of major legislation, Congress's residence in New York demonstrated that it could cohere and work stronger than its predecessor, the Articles of Confederation Congress. For the first time in New York, Congress flexed the powers of the legislative branch of government that would in time reshape the nation. Similarly, in the executive branch, George Washington's near year in New York City helped him in the ongoing process of inventing the presidency, both in its executive duties and its symbolic functions. In New York, Washington had established the president that the president should be regularly available to the public and that he should be free to leave the Capitol to tour the public as he wished. Most significantly, Washington learned that the president's residence must reflect the occupant's place as the first citizen of a Republican nation. Despite fits and starts, the five and a half year period when New York City was the capital set into motion great changes. There, the old Confederation government ended and the new federal government started. There, Congress and the presidency both realized their real powers. And there, before the White House, stood the first two presidential residences. Recalling New York's capital legacy then reminds us of where the new American nation first took place, only in New York. Thank you. That was wonderful. I learned so many new things over the last 45 minutes. <laughs> um, I just want to say that I understand your frustration when you walk around lower Manhattan and everything is covered in scaffolding or no longer exists or has a plaque that is inaccessible. Um, I'm sure many of us have that frustration. Uh, so it was like a knife to the heart that I felt. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rough walking around at lunchtime, I should say. Uh, so we still have Francis. There's one, there's one building left. We still have the one. Um, I saw one question come in about the map that you just had. Uh, Sandra wanted to know on the map, is the port in the lower left corner, Elizabethtown, New Jersey? Well, what you're getting is not Elizabethtown. That would be quite a bit further back in the image, but you're actually getting what is now today's Jersey City. Um, and so it doesn't quite show where the Statue of Liberty would eventually be placed because that map would, doesn't yet have it there. Um, so it's sort of showing a kind of bird's eye view of Manhattan, um, parts of New Jersey and Brooklyn and sort of beyond it in the distance. Um, and I think what's interesting and what that map also illustrates and what the directory plan before it illustrates is just how much New York would be transformed by landfill. This is still the sort of a city that is showing most of its natural borders. But in time, uh, both of those images will look quaint compared to the growing size of Manhattan Island. Oh yeah, comparing the map today to a Costello map is, it doesn't look like the same city. I mean, we're on landfill, so yep. you see it every day. Um, so taking that lecture and assessing what happened in New York City during that time, what happens afterwards? Like when we're talking about the greatness of New York City as the first capital, what is the, what is the positive result? Like, why are we the best city in the world? <laughs> Well, no one's going to dispute that tonight. Um, <laughs> but New York was in really rough shape at the end of the American Revolution. It was the city occupied the longest by an enemy army in a seven-year war that really was a civil war between, on the one hand, patriots, on the other hand, loyalists, between two opposing armies that just stared at each other uh, <laughs> down the Hudson River for, for six and a half years. Um, New York was burned, New York was devastated, it was depopulated. So what came out of this brief 16 month period was a revitalized New York. It would very quickly surpass Philadelphia as the largest city and would embrace its true future as a commercial hub. It's the greatest harbor in the continent, 
possibly in the world. And it would then expand onto uh, that, that, um, and, and that commercial kind of um, thrust by continuing to build out along Manhattan Island. I mean, what I sort of think about is had New York actually stayed the capital, it would have been terrible uh, for oh. the commercial development of New York. Just look at the, the size and scope of the buildings in Washington, DC, and just imagine how you could fit all the buildings of the federal government in this tiny space of lower Manhattan. Um, as it turned out, every square foot of land was precious in Manhattan, not something that was perhaps realized in 1790 when buildings were being thrown around willy-nilly, but actually there was no way to fit the federal government uh, on Manhattan or even in, in the, the boroughs that today compose New York City. So it was actually like a very fortunate, I think, development uh, to not have New York become the capital. And I also think another thing about it was it freed up um, its position to truly embrace its moniker as the Empire State by again focusing on commerce up the Hudson River and eventually in the, in the construction of the Erie Canal, this makes New York the great sort of entrepot for trade and travel. And it's been shown also, I think, across um, you know, other across history in, in Europe and in other places of the world that the government capital and the commercial capital of a nation don't often share the same space. And in fact, it, it's best for the development of a nation. I think this is true generally to have the capital not uh, in the commercial center of the nation. Again, that's not the case globally, but I would say if you look at the development of countries today, especially newer ones that, that had the choice of where to place their capitals, almost universally, they separate those two things uh, for that exact reason. Hmm. So it happened for a reason. <laughs> We're still number one somehow. <laughs> uh, there was a few questions that came in about Washington's time in New York City. I know that Martha did not enjoy her time here, uh, and I'm pretty sure George didn't. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the the state dinners? And I know Martha opened up the mansion as well on Friday nights or Wednesday nights. Friday nights. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what those look like, who they were entertaining? Were they more kind of out of the nine to five and kind of decompressing from starting a new nation or were they all shop talk? Well, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, there's, there's not too many surviving records of what was discussed at a, a typical state dinner. Washington's nephew um, actually left in his diary some sense of the early days at the Franklin House, not so much for the Macomb House, um, but the state dinners would have been, I guess, a pre precursor to something that still goes on, which is bringing in important uh, members, whether they be of Congress and eventually over time, heads of state from, um, you know, across the globe to be welcomed to the United States and to, dis and to essentially break down those barriers that um, what breaking bread can do together to socialize and to sort of discuss informally this, the, the business of of, of the nation. Now, as far as the social life, I think it's important, again, I tried to distinguish this, that when Washington was at Martha Washington's drawing rooms or levees, um, he was a private citizen. And in that image, which is quite stylized and it does not represent the reality of what it might've looked like in either of those two places, um, he's sort of in the back, which I think is a nice perspective the artist provided. He's sort of out of view. He's not the center of intention. Instead, it's Martha in her role as hostess. And I think this also gets us to something I could have also mentioned is how Martha Washington establishes uh, the role of hostess. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say first lady, although we would call her that today, but that's not a term that will really be in widespread use until much later. But again, if we're to use the phrase and if we understand it today as what the role of the first lady is, she began to embrace that. Now, whether they actually enjoyed their time in New York is another question. I think particularly those first months at the Franklin House were difficult. And Washington did not feel he had a residence that really was suitable to the president. But I think once he actually was able to get his hands on the Macomb House, he was actually much happier. And he was able to finally build that stable for his horses. And having a view of the Hudson and a garden isn't bad either. Um, but the thing was, he also knew that it wasn't his choice. So when he got the news, that Congress had agreed to relocate to Philadelphia, he actually expressed what I wouldn't say is, he wasn't upset because Washington rarely <laughs> would express that, but he was dismayed. 
he basically had just gotten his house in order and he yeah. was going to have to give it up. So I think Washington uh, was maybe frustrated to leave New York after having put in all the work to make the, the new mansion, the Macomb mansion, uh, as, as good as it could be. I could imagine after not being at home for yeah. all of the years during the war, barely getting home, settling in New York, having to settle in Philadelphia, have to settling again. Yeah. This poor guy just wanted a home. <laughs> Um, I have a question about the Republican court ladies, Lady Washington's reception day. Uh, the interior looks very grand. Which building was that in? Well, and, and as I was trying to hint at it, that is not a real place. Um, so a lot of the iconography and the images that I use in my presentation come from the later 19th century, generations past when um, New York was the capital and when people who were alive at that time uh, could, could speak to it. And as I've said, even when the buildings themselves had been demolished at that point. So we're getting a very stylized view, both of Washington's arrival on evacuation day and in the Lady Washington's court. I use it because I think it actually speaks more to sort of what we might look at as high Victorian understanding from the 19th century of the Republican court. And I think what it attempts to do, especially if, if you look actually from the 1860s at a point where the nation had um, achieved a fairly flourishing court culture of its own in Washington, D.C., and really was uh, on the eve of the Civil War as grand uh, an antebellum social life as had been seen, um, was, I think, projecting backwards onto those early gatherings, which would have been much smaller and nowhere near that ornate neoclassical style and it's also, we don't have evidence of Lady Washington standing on that raised dais, which, which, which puts her literally above the rest of the crowd. So again, it, it, it is a bit stylized. Now, some, there are some pretty fun and fascinating little incidents that take place, including one I, I didn't include, but um, it's just so too funny. I'll just mention here. Uh, you kind of sense from the hair style of the time that women at this point were maybe past the peak of the... I'll call it the huge hairdos, um, but it was still a very common and uh, fashionable style for women to have these beehive style dues on top that could project a foot or more above their head. So imagine in an era where candlelight was still the operative use of lighting and someone unwittingly getting too close to a candle. And indeed there's a report of a woman's hair being set on fire at oh, Lady wow. Washington's drawing room. Oh no, I'm so glad that hair is not in style. <laughs> I, so happy. I say with like my hair down and like not in a giant poof. I just, every time I see portraits like that, I'm like so much time had to be spent doing that. And it had to have been flammable, right? Yep. Um, while you were doing your research, there's a lot of questions coming in about the locations and where did it, where were these originally located and when they were torn down and how do we find these markers? Yeah. When you were doing your research, was there anything that surprised you about locations or what existed or what didn't exist? And I mean, I'm sure that there's a building that you wish still existed that we could go into and say, aha, this is where it was. Yeah, these are, these are great questions. And in some ways you have to explore. I mean, one thing about Lower Manhattan is it is difficult to understand it unless you're on the ground seeing it for yourself. And what I, I found being on the ground was that I would be walking by a place and I would notice something the second or third time I walked by. And it gave me a new perspective on say where a building was located or where a marker stood. And yes, you have to be persistent. You have to keep trying because sometimes you think you're in the right location only to find a big fence or a scaffolding and you have to kind of ask, well, where am I? So there's that. Um, I also think that again, the maps from the earlier period, because it's an era where not quite the full island in terms of the landfill has come in, it's sort of deceiving how small a lower Manhattan was at this period and how everything was contained and how it was a town in a sense, a small, almost like a, a small town feel. Um, so being able to walk the entirety of the historic uh, New York City of this period helps you to get a sense of how quickly things could happen, how, how you could go from place to place with ease. Um, but I think of the overall landmarks, say what's interesting is that the, that the customs house, which was government house, had been used as a custom house. And so that location at Bowling Green, Bowling Green itself being an important landmark, is and has been 
long targeted as the place. And if you go, um, you know, back to that map or you find an older map, I mentioned Fort George. That was actually the site of a military fort that had been torn down to make way for this government house. And one reason they were able to do that uh, is because they had Castle Clinton, which again is that circular, you know, mound that looks like it's off the island. That's all been landfilled. Yeah. And now that's part of the battery. And so, um, I think it took me a long time to realize what that that Castle Clinton was once an island. That when I finally figured that out, that helped me a lot. Yeah, uh, <laughs> to figure out where I was. It helps um, you get your bearings. Um, but I guess of all the houses, if I could pick one, I really wish that the original Federal Hall had not been torn down. I mean, as much as we have this grand Greek revival structure that unfortunately also is closed today due to the pandemic uh, lingering, I just. Um, that I think to have the first meeting place of Congress would have been perhaps the most significant building of all. And um, that's the one I wish that still stood today. Yeah, you just, again, you walk around and you just get so upset that one or two other buildings couldn't have just survived. Um, I see some more questions coming in. And then we have, um, let's open this up. They've moved around on me. Bear with me just for a second, everybody. What are, very quickly, what are some of the reasons why Washington, D.C. was chosen for our national seat of government? So we've moved a few times, and then you mentioned, obviously, the very famous Hamilton line yeah. of the room where it happened. You yeah. stand on that one. Do you know any secrets? <laughs> Do, was I there where it happened? No. <laughs> um, it's, um, it, it's to say that George Washington's influence cannot be overlooked. Washington was a huge proponent of a, what he called the Potomac river uh, capital site. And the city of Alexandria was an established town city at this point. So it was Georgetown. So you had these two towns that were already existing that he believed would be the perfect place to, play, to put this federal seat on. Now, he didn't quite figure out how the capital might look. Thankfully, though, L'Enfant comes along and provides a possible plan that Washington will spend the rest of his life really trying to envision. And one reason Washington was so committed to a Potomac location was his own investment in a canal company that, that he hoped to make the Potomac River viable to connect to the Ohio country and to the Ohio River. Of course, the, this, this Potomac and Ohio Canal will not quite be built out to the extent that would, would need to be in other canals and other forms of transportation, namely the Erie Canal ultimately will make that no longer a commercial viability, which gets back to why it actually was a good and proper site for a seat of federal government. But the real reason I think Washington chose a Maryland, Virginia site was because it was at the time a central and a seaboard location. So it had access to water so that uh, the various um, states along the, the water, which was most of the population at this point, still could get to this new capital. And it was also between North and South. Now, as I mentioned, the, the Congress had moved around a number of times. And it was also the case that once New York had kind of snagged the capital in 1785, every other city kept asking Congress and petitioning Congress to move the capital there. And there were more than 40 locations that were proposed during these, these years for a capital. And literally states, every state submitted a, a, a possibility with some states having more than one. Uh, I mentioned Trenton, that was probably the most viable spot in New Jersey. Um, New York also suggested Poughkeepsie, which also had been a state capital at the time. Um, there were Lancaster in the interior was also mentioned. So really um, any possible spot that could conceivably be a capital was mentioned. Um, and I think that Philadelphia was a kind of compromise because the idea would be if the Potomac site doesn't work out, you still have a potentially more central location as compared to New York and Philadelphia, as well as at that point, the largest city in America. I guess it's a personal opinion whether or not you think Washington, D.C. in that location was the right location. But I think that's another discussion for another <laughs> lecture. Yes. Uh, so uh, how can we learn more about your research and ongoing quarterly articles coming out okay. next year? Um, well, thanks for that. And thanks for all your questions, everybody. Um, as I said, this is actually new research for me. And I want to just you know begin by saying I would not have done this research had I not been this past year living in New York City and researching so frequently out of the wonderful historical sites um, that are here. 
And this includes, of course, Francis Tavern, which I recommend and suggest strongly that everyone visit uh, both the museum and the restaurant. Now, that being said, the White House History Quarterly is an excellent venue for um, publication about the presidency, about presidential history, and of course, a history of Washington, D.C., most notably that structure at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House. So you can find more of my research on the White House History Historical Association's website. This is whitehousehistory.org, where over the past year I've contributed articles there. I also, um, as, as was mentioned in the biography, have written a book about an American president, one who actually um, thought of George Washington as his personal hero and example, and that of course is James Buchanan. Um, it, it turns out that perhaps maybe he didn't study Washington's example closely enough, but if you want to learn more about that, check out my book. Um, and finally, I'm on social media where I'm constantly posting things that I come across, whether it be in New York City or in archives uh, or what I might find online. So you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at T. Balsersky. Awesome. And then our final question, the one that I love asking everybody, if you could dine at Francis Tavern with anybody, who would it be? <laughs> well, I'm going to go with George Washington, uh, but I'm going, to, <laughs> I'm going to add a date. Uh, rather a kind of a moment um, because I, I want I, that it would be with George Washington on the day that he said farewell to his officers, that emotional day, which is part of the tour, by the way, and is, and is very nicely interpreted in the dining room at Francis Tavern. Yeah, I, I have many questions about that day and I would probably join you in the corner with a notebook, kind of, you know, quietly scribbling to myself, getting all those like one-on-one -on -one conversations. Well, thank you so much. This was so interesting, so informative. I hope everybody learned something because I have about 14 other questions and some about Samuel Francis that I will be reaching out to you about. Uh, so thank you everybody for joining us. We hope that you have a wonderful evening. Please keep supporting Francis Tavern. We very much appreciate it. Go follow Dr. Balsersky. He is wonderful to follow. And if you have any questions, of course, reach out to us. So thank you everybody and have a wonderful evening.